So as we go into this, I wanted desperately to have a keynote PowerPoint so that you could follow along. Um, the amount of information I'm sharing, it's always nicer to have a PowerPoint. You can see it. Uh, you can tell already that I'm apologizing. Um, I don't have one. No, I woke up this morning. I said, you know what? I can finish uh, the, the, the thought process in one hour, and I'll have another hour to put together a keynote. Well, two and a half hours later, I realized it just wasn't working. And so you will have to be attentive uh, in an audible way. I will do my best to be clear in a verbal way as we go into this study. It's entitled, Two Woeful Trumpets. Now, in our study, we have, it's kind of been a little, unfortunately, for, in my opinion, we've been a little disjointed because we've had one, and then we had a couple weeks off, then another a couple weeks, and then here's a third. But if you don't mind, I'll do a review, Okay. Uh, when we first looked at the trumpets, we noticed that there was uh, an emphasis on the prayers of God, uh, prayers of the saints going up before God uh, from the altar, uh, the golden altar there in the sanctuary in heaven. We see that picture, and, and then we realize that God's uh, hand moves on behalf of his people when they pray. Uh, we saw that clearly. And then uh, two weeks ago, was it two weeks ago or was it last week? It was last week. We realized that there are first four trumpets. They're judgments. The language is judgment language throughout. For example, trumpets are judgment. Hail and fire are judgment language. Burnt mountain uh, thrown into the sea is judgment language. Wormwood is judgment language. Sun, moon, and stars being darkened. These are judgment language. So when we read about these, okay, this is, this is a time of judgment. We also notice something else. We notice that the history of the seals, start the time of John, proceed to the end of time. Four seals, two seals, one seal. The trumpets do the same thing. Four trumpets, two trumpets, one trumpet. The first four trumpets connected in time with the first four seals. Now we're going to take some time and go a little bit for, further with the next two trumpets. One more thing that I'd like to emphasize from last week. We saw the number a third a lot. It was affecting a third of the trees and grass, right? We noticed that it was affecting a third of the sea. And then we noticed it was a third of the fountains. Then we noticed, actually, was it a third of the fountains? Maybe not. Yes, it was. A third of the rivers and the springs of waters. A third of the waters became wormwood. And then in the fourth one, we saw a third of the sun, moon, and the stars, and a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine. We see the word third used throughout. Third is used in the judgment sense. There's no question that in Old Testament prophecy, third is used in a judgment sense. But it's also merciful. Because when you see a third being affected negatively by something, how much is not being affected negatively by that? Two-thirds. And then we looked last week at a passage at the end of the sixth trumpet in Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. And it makes this statement. It says, and they, um, but the rest of the mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Verse 21 gives the same concept of do not, did not repent. The reason I'm bringing it up is because if it's brought out that someone did not repent, then you get the impression that they could have. There was an opportunity for repentance. In other words, uh, I think we use an illustration with three men up here. 
and uh, one-third was taken away, and that means the two-thirds still had an opportunity to change things if they wanted to do so. That is what we see happening here on the planet with the six, first six trumpets. Uh, we looked at four last week. We'll be looking at the fifth and sixth today. There's a, a story that was recounted in the National Geographic magazine in 1987. It was talking about the, the attack of the Ottoman Turks on the Hungarian Empire. And when it gives that detail, um, it said that the Muslim conqueror made this statement when he found out about the death of the Hungarian Christian king. May God be merciful to him and punish those who misled his inexperience. I came indeed to arms against him. But it was not my wish that he should be thus cut off while he had scarcely tasted the sweets of life and royalty. Who would have thought a Muslim conqueror would say that of a Christian king? That's not the picture we're given in today's society, definitely not in today's uh, picture of a more militant Muslim world. However, um, a man by the name of Luther said this. To fight against the Turks, this is quoted in the National Geographic magazine, to fight against the Turks is to resist the Lord who visits our sins with such rods. What? Luther was insinuating that the Ottoman Turk, the Muslims of their time, were being used by God to do something. And I propose, as we go into our study here, we might be seeing something similar. Now, if you don't mind... Uh, before I go into bridge this next section, I'd like to just pray a little bit, ask the Holy Spirit to be with me, and bless our time. Father, I recognize as what I'm talking about is not um, as easy to explain sometimes, and yet it's crystal clear that your hand is involved in history. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us. May my words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the first trumpet, we have the, the judgment fall on the nation of Israel. Who was the people who brought about that judgment? It was the Romans under Titus. At least we're looking at the destruction of Jerusalem, we would say that. We look at the next judgment that fell on the Roman Empire. Who was used to bring that judgment on the Roman Empire? The northern Germanic tribes. Remember the, the, the Roman Empire would break up into ten different tribes? That was being used. And then we saw there was judgment uh, with the, the great star falling from heaven and, and uh, killing a third of it, destroying or making bitter a third of the streams uh, and, and, and the fountains. Who was the great star? Biblically speaking, great star fallen from heaven is Satan. So we see that there's an oppressor here. There's an oppressor here. There's an oppressor here being used, allowed to be used by God to accomplish judgment on those who oppress God's people. These were punished by this one. This one was punished by this one. This one punished this next group. God allowed different oppressors to be judged, used different groups of people. 
I believe that God did that throughout the Old Testament. Those of us studied it, you can see it all the time. God used the Assyrians to punish the um, Israelites. God used the Assyrians to punish the Jews. God used the Babylonians to punish them. Sometimes God used the Babylonians to punish the Edomites. Sometimes he used Israel to punish some other group. God used different groups to bring about his judgment and ultimate will in the lives of people. His will is that, that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is his goal, is to bring to repentance. Now in the trumpets, we're seeing the same exact concept of what God is doing. With that in mind, I'd like to um, proceed into our study. We're going to look at time-wise. Uh, here's where we've gone. From the nation of Israel and their destruction to the destruction of the Western Roman Empire to the infiltration of, uh, of, of um, false doctrine into the medieval Roman church. We are now in the Middle Ages. The fifth and sixth trumpet is going to pick up there. If you don't mind reading with me, in Revelation chapter 9, we will start with verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and a great, excuse me, fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, so that the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lions' teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. I'm going to stop here. Do you notice there's a word that is being used a lot over here? It's called like, 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 like. There's this comparison that's being used here. We are not talking about a real locust that looks like a horse that's got women's hair and the teeth of a lion wearing a breastplate of iron. What we're using is symbols here to describe a certain thing. Remember, Revelation is written in typology. Yes? It's written with symbols to explain a truth. And it uses Old Testament language in those symbols to help explain what's trying to be said. Let's continue here. And they had tails like scorpions. I'm in verse 10. And there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. Verse 12. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. All right, as we jump into it and start at it, uh, I cannot look at everything for the sake of time, but we're going to pull out some key points, and these points we're going to pull together and get a picture of this next oppressor, no, excuse me, this next group used to judge the oppressors of God's people. As we look, we start out with a, a star fallen from heaven to the earth. Well, 
We looked at this last week. A star was a symbol of angels in the Bible. And this is an angel fallen from heaven. Um, if we look at it from the third trumpet perspective, it could easily be Satan or Lucifer. But there was also Satan's angels that fell with him from heaven. So we definitely see we have a fallen angel here. Um, and this fallen angel has been given the key to the bottomless pit. If you're given the key to the bottomless pit, did you have it before? It's important to note that there's a, uh, they, have a they have a phraseology in, in, in English, uh, excuse me, in Bible study here. It's called the divine passive. What's being implied here is God gave the key. God is allowing this to take place. He's permitting it to take place. This key to the bottomless pit is being given. The word bottomless pit here is the Greek word abusos. And we use this and when we're looking at Revelation 20, we're just studying the millennium that uh, Satan is cast into the bottomless pit, the abusos. And the abusos is used often to describe both in the New Testament and in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's used to describe an uninhabited, desolate place. Now, if I were to review what we've just looked at briefly in verse 1 and 2. There's an angel, come to, a fallen angel, who's given a key he, to the uninhabited, desolate places. We continue. When he opens it, something happens. Locusts come out. Locusts, it says, like smoke. And he uses this phrase, the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit, and out of the smoke locusts came. These locusts are unique. First of all, we know they're a symbol. Whenever you see a locust in the Bible, it's used to show something. It's used to show judgment. If you go to the book of Exodus, and we look at the land of Egypt, we have the eighth plague, and the eighth plague is locusts. They come and they destroy everything in its path. Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 14, talks about locusts being used to bring judgment on Babylon. Locusts are used for judgment. But it's interesting to note here that these don't attack grass or green things or trees. It says they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green tree thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. We looked at trees a little bit before in our previous lesson. Trees are a symbol of those who follow God or profess to follow God. We saw that, and they're not allowed to do anything to them. In fact, they're not allowed to touch those who have the seal of God on their forehead, or I like to use the phrase in the forehead, as it says in some translations. What is that? Again, we go back to our study in Revelation chapter 7. We recognize, especially those of us who like studying end-time prophecy, the seal of God is connected with obedience to God. And it's seen in the fourth commandment. However, we also realize that the Bible in Ephesians talks about being sealed by the Holy Spirit. Yes? You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. That means you belong to God and then you obey God. That's the connection we see when we see with the seal. If someone is sealed, it says in Revelation that they have the name of God on their forehead. If you looked 
at this book that I have here. Uh-oh, is this, this one doesn't, but this one does. No, this one doesn't either. Ooh, it's not good. But a lot of my books, I have my name written in them. Yes? And these don't have my name, so I'm going to keep a hold on them. But if I have my name written in it, it says this belongs to me. When you have God's name written on the forehead of someone, it says that person belongs to God. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in our lives is a a symbol to the entire universe that we belong to Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture. So here is a people that have the Holy Spirit in their lives. They're obeying God. And God says, you don't touch them, leave them alone. So this fifth trumpet plague taking place after uh, where we were at in the Middle Ages before. So uh, we're still in the Middle Ages. But this fifth trumpet plague that's taking place, these locusts, this judgment that's coming out, is not going to happen on God's people. So that's uh, important for us to look at and see here. All right. By the way, for those uh, looking at the Holy Spirit sealing you, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And there are more texts. What power completely overran everything in its path during the Middle Ages, attacked the oppressors of God's people, the Middle Roman church. What power was like locusts and just took out everything in its path? Interesting, it was the Ottoman Empire or Muslims in their time period. They rose around 622 with Muhammad and became powerful rapidly and overran much of the Mediterranean world in a powerful way. I am proposing this morning, and I'm not alone in this view, I am proposing that God use the Muslim world to punish those who were hurting his people. There is much evidence that we can find in the early Muslim conquering that they did not attack Christians, specifically those who kept the seventh-day Sabbath. And there were those in almost every continent. Even though we don't hear about it in history books today, they were in almost every continent those who kept the seventh-day Sabbath. And Muslims were given by their commander, in fact, Muhammad's next in command, the one who took over when he left, Abu, and I forget his second name. He gave a specific command that you should not attack anyone who calls upon God. There is a common God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you find is God of Abraham for the Muslims, for the Jews, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that same God for the Christian. He said, if they believe here, let them alone as long as you're willing to pay tribute. Fascinating, fascinating study. So there is that picture that we see. But there's a a, a phrase that was used. And I'd like to comment on it. And that is five months. Now, I have been studying for this. I honestly, quite frankly, um, I'm not looking at you with bleary eyes, but almost. There is this person who says this, and this person who says this, and this person who says this. Five months is here. Five months is here. Five months is here. Biblically speaking, five months is a time of judgment. We, want to, we cannot miss that. How do I get that? Genesis chapter 7 and verse 24. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 3. What event is this? If it's Genesis 7 and Genesis 8, what event, major event in the Bible are we talking about? We're talking about the flood. 
And it says the waters prevailed upon the earth for 150 days, which is five months. Five biblical months. There are 30 days to a month in the Bible. So you have this time period. Now, I like to share something with you that makes a lot of sense to me. The Ottoman Empire came into, exerted its, its um, strength against the Eastern Roman Empire started in the year 1299. Now, I've been doing some research on this as well, and there are some who used to say, you know what, it's really not 1299, it's actually 1301, but now we're looking at it again, and we're saying actually it was 1299. Um, there is a historian by the name of Edward Gibbons who some have questioned, said, and he said July 27, 1299, but I haven't questioned him because the longer we look at it, the more it becomes real. For example, let me give you an example. When does Turkey consider the beginning of their empire? 1299. You know how we know that? They had the 700th anniversary in 1999. They have big stamps that say 700th anniversary. The Turkish empire knows when it started. And I would assume that I could trust them better than a historian that's from my own country. I mean, that's my personal opinion. So we have this time, July 27, 1299. And the reason we choose July 27 is because that's when they started attacking a place called Nicomedia, which was part of the Byzantine Empire, which was part of the Eastern Roman Church. Um, that took place. If you went 150 years from there, you come to the year 1449. Now you see why I wanted to screen. You see why I wanted to screen now, because those days would be helpful. 1299, I go 150 years, I come to 1449. Here's what happened in 1299. The Christian nation came under control of a Muslim power, the Ottoman Turk. It started the attack. 150 years later, there was a Christian king, the last one, in the Eastern Roman Empire, his name, they called him Constantine, I believe Constantine the 11th. And he took up his power, but you know what? He had to get permission to become king. And you know who he got permission from? The Ottoman Empire. Fascinating. It's like me saying, um, you know what? I'm gonna go to town right now and pick up some soy milk. Uh, is that okay, honey? Well, who's in charge, the honey or me? The honey is, right? We understand that. And so when you have this Byzantine, last Byzantine emperor say, I'm going to be king, um, if that's okay with you, sultan. Who's in charge? The sultan is. And we see that taking place. A very fascinating story in history. And of course, that was just 150 years after. So when they start the attack to the time when uh, they're fully under their powers 150 years. Interesting to note, though, the Byzantine Empire is not destroyed during this time. You know why? If you look at the fifth trumpet, they do not kill. They only torment and torture, but they were not given permission to kill. I'm not talking about human beings. We're talking about an empire here. An empire was not killed. It's tormented, it's tortured, but it's not destroyed. That changes when you go into the next trumpet. Now, before we get into the next trumpet, I would like to um, just briefly comment on verse 13. It's semi-brief. We're going to comment on this much more a little bit later. 
Revelation 9.13 says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. And I get excited when I read this for this reason. We've had the first trumpet. Oh, before we had the first trumpet, we had a golden altar with prayers of the saints going up before God. Then I had first trumpet, second trumpet, third trumpet, fourth trumpet. All of them are judgments upon those who are oppressors of God people. Judgment time, judgment time, judgment time. Then I have the fifth trumpet take place. Again, judgment on the oppressors of God's people. God, God may not look like, okay, from our perspective, we may not see God's directly involved in the trials we face. But the bottom line is God is over all things. He sees what's happening. He's moving his hand to accomplish his purposes and ultimately our salvation. So these things happen. Now, right before the sixth trumpet, there's this reminder of what we saw all the way at the beginning. And that is a golden altar, which is before God. What happens on the golden altar? Sanctuary language, please tell me. What happens on the golden altar in the sanctuary? It's not the sacrifices of the bronze altar outside. What happens on the golden altar inside? Incense, prayers, right? And so we saw that in chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. This is a reminder again, your prayers are being heard. Because whenever I see the golden altar, I think of prayers of God's people. Your prayers are being heard. You know, there are times when people are crying out to God and they feel that their prayers are not being heard. But God is interjecting this in the midst of this passage to say, your prayers are being heard. What a beautiful picture this is laying out for us. And then it, and then it describes uh, here saying, the sixth angel who had the trumpet said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Very simple. This reminds me of Revelation chapter 7 with the four angels holding back the wings of strife, right? And now I have four angels that are being released to slay, it says in verse 15. But they are bound at the great river Euphrates. In the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, Joshua, Deuteronomy, throughout the, the history of the kings, the territory of God's people was from the river. I'm going to try to do this reverse for you all. From the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates. That was the territory of God's people. And so when you see there's this destruction about to take place and they're waiting at the river Euphrates, they're waiting right on the edge. We're about to come in and attack the territory that belongs to God's people. We're waiting. And you get that feel here. That's um, uh, the, the picture if I stick within Scripture for my interpretation. All right. Now, how long will they have power? It says they were prepared for the hour the day and the month and the year, and they were released to kill a third of mankind. This is no longer tormenting and torture. This is the killing of mankind. I want to emphasize this time period. Again, I wish I had a screen that I could lay out or have a whiteboard and just write it up. You know, sometime I might just get a six-foot whiteboard and just put it on the, on, up here with me. I hope you wouldn't mind. But it helps teaching sometimes. Um, a large one would be too hard in it, and I'm afraid I won't be able to put enough in on a small one, but thank you so much. The media team is on top of offering my needs. Thank you. So we have a year, followed by a month, followed by a day, followed by an hour. Thank you. Now, these are from a prophetic time, and you know when we're in prophecy, we're looking at prophetic time. 
A year is 360 days. Prophetic would be 360 years. A prophetic year is 360 literal years. A prophetic month is 30 literal days. A prophetic day is a literal year. Where are we at? 360, 31. 391. And then an hour. What's 1 24th of a day? One hour. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Who scratched that one? What's 1 24th of a year? It's 15 days. Because 1 12th of a year would be a month, right? So 1 24th would be half of that, which would be 15 days. Thank you all for your mercy. All right. So you have 391 days, literal years, and 15 days. I, I find it interesting uh, that you would have such a thing. Um, if you actually take the time frame, starting with the, the very documented date in history from when the Ottoman Empire, when the Ottoman Empire came in, they, they took the Christians from being in charge and the Ottomans became in charge. The Christians were now subservient or, to the Ottomans. That took place, that began to take place in July 27 of 1299. And then we saw we went 150 years to 1449. Now, if I would add this next trumpet and add this next time period, the next trumpet of 391 days, 391 years and 15 days, it would end on August 11, 1840. In that date, you and I could expect to see the Byzantine Ottoman, not, not Byzantine, the Ottoman Empire lose its authority and come underneath and need the help of someone they didn't need the help from before. And I'm going to propose Christian. There's a book that describes a man doing this. His name was Josiah Litch. And the book I'm reading from is called The Great Controversy. In the year 1840, another remarkable fulfillment of prophecy excited widespread interest. Two years before, that'd be 1838, Josiah Litch, one of the leading ministers preaching the Second Advent, published an exposition of Revelation 9, what we're studying today, predicting the fall of the Ottoman Empire. According to his calculations, this power was to be overthrown in 80, 1840, sometime in the month of August. And only a few days previous to its accomplishments, he wrote, Allowing the first period, 150 years, to have been exactly fulfilled before Diocosius, that would be Constantine's additional name, ascended the throne by permission of the Turks, and that the 391 years, 15 days, commenced at the close of the first period, it will end on the 11th of August, 1840. Now, he's saying this before it happened. When the Ottoman Empire in Constantinople may be expected to be broken, and this, I believe, will be found to be the case. He wrote this on August 1st, 1840, 10 days before. He had it published in a magazine just to make sure people knew what he was saying. I don't know if I'd publish it. It's kind of nice to wait to afterwards and say, yeah, I was thinking that. But not Josiah Litch. He was kind of bold in this. The book Great Controversy goes on and says this. At the very time specified, Turkey, through her ambassadors, because the Ottoman Empire is in what we now call modern-day Turkey, accepted the protection of the allied powers of Europe and placed herself under the control 
of Christian nations. The event exactly fulfilled the prediction. Wow, amazing. Uh, it's amazing. And I mentioned that there are some people who have challenged the date, but the more we look at it, the more we realize recent study in this recent century is proving more than ever the dates that we're looking at. You know what they say? Archaeology, the study of time and history, often proves prophecy more and more accurate. And it's what we're seeing taking place. It's exciting as we look at this. All right. Uh, let's continue with this section here. There's a, locust was the big issue in the fifth trumpet. There's a new animal that's kind of the big issue here in the sixth trumpet. And that animal actually doesn't even use the animal's name. It just uses what rides the animal. This is horsemen, horsemen, horsemen. I propose if you have horsemen, you have to have horses. Why are horses used and horsemen? What are they used for in the Bible, biblically speaking? War, over and over. Horses are war animals. Now, you and I don't think that. Uh, my daughter can't wait to get a horse. I don't know how that's going to happen, but she wants one. And she can't wait to go horseback riding, and she dreams of horses and reads about horses. For her, horses are entertainment, uh, maybe a big pet. Uh, I, I, that's, a, that's another discussion. Um, but horses in the Bible weren't that way. Horses in the Bible were used for warfare. In fact, uh, you read in Psalms 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we are going to trust in the name of the Lord our God. In fact, God didn't want people to have horses in ancient Israel and Judah for that purpose. So they would not trust in their military might, but that they would trust in him. When they started going down is when they started, and let me use the phrase from the Bible, multiplying horses unto themselves. They were actually like, it, almost like you and I doing it this way. You know what? The more tanks we have, the better off we are. That's what a horse was to the ancient world. It was their tanks. It was their cavalry. Our cavalry today is tanks. Their cavalry then were horses. And God said, you don't need to trust that. You can trust me. Well, when I see horses here, again, I see this, this language is, is connected with warfare. And then something else is connected with these horsemen. Outside of the fascinating colors, I'm not going to go into all of that. Um, I'm, I'm afraid that it's easy sometimes when you go into some specifics to lose the big picture. But I would like to notice something that's repeated twice here. It says that something comes out of their mouths in verse 17. Fire, smoke, and brimstone. And then verse 18, it says, By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and brimstone, which came out of their mouths. Fire, smoke, and brimstone. Where do I see this phraseology in the Old Testament? I hope you're noticing what we're doing. I'm looking at the Old Testament to help me explain the book of Revelation. Why? Because Revelation was written in symbols, and two-thirds of it is taken from the Old Testament. I'm looking at the Old Testament to help me out. Where is fire, smoke, and brimstone? In judgment. Always in judgment. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire, smoke, and brimstone. Um, do you mind looking with me to um, Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 22? There's several others, but I like to just look at this one. Ezekiel 38 and verse 22. And the reason I'm choosing this one is because it uses a word, uh, an enemy, that is brought up a little bit later in Revelation. So I want to just keep introducing him. Ezekiel 38 
and verse 22. So I'm going to start introducing this enemy ahead of time so it's kind of flowing around in our brains. Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 22. Actually, I'm going to start with verse 21 because that has the name of the enemy. I will call for a sword against Gog through all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Again, we saw the hailstones, what we looked at before, but we also have the fire and brimstones being used. Um, Great, great information. By the way, Isaiah 34 says it's used in judgment on Edom. Psalms 11 talks of fire, smoke, and brimstone and punishment of the wicked. All right, so where is this going? What is the purpose of this? Why am I sharing? Let me repeat, and then if you don't mind, I'd like to read a little bit of history that might be helpful. In the seven trumpets, I see an overview of history in light of how God judges the oppressors of his people. I see judgment on the oppressors, the the Jewish uh, nation versus the early Christian church. We see judgment on the Roman Empire who oppressed the early Christian church. We see judgment on the medieval Roman church who had false doctrine, and ended up persecuting God's people. But we also see judgment via the Muslim world on the Eastern Roman Church and the Western Roman Church. Not only was it judgment, it protected God's people. And and I think that's important. We don't want to miss this. It protected God's people. I'd like to read something to you, if you don't mind. Uh, This is a quote. Um, I didn't want to bring in the large book, so I brought another book that quoted it. But this is a quote from Wiley's History of Protestantism, Volume 1, Book 9, Chapter 1, page 473. And here it is. When a crisis arose in the affairs of the Reformation. Okay, we're speaking about the time when the Protestant Reformation was starting. a A reminder that we are saved by grace through faith. A reminder that the Bible is our authority. When there was a crisis that arose, and the kings who were obedient to the Roman sea had united their swords to strike, and with blows so decisive that they should not need to strike a second time. In other words, what happens is here you have the the medieval Roman Catholic Church, and the kings that supported it had their swords, and they're ready to kill those who were preaching this, this belief in the Bible alone and salvation by grace through faith. When they were ready to strike them, it says this, the Turk, that is the Ottoman Turk, the Muslim, obeying one whom he knew not, would straightway present himself on the eastern limits of Europe and in so menacing an attitude that the swords unsheathed against the poor Protestants had to be turned in another quarter. So the swords that were going to be taken to kill the Protestant Reformation all of a sudden had to be turned to fight off the Turks. It says the Turk was the lightning rod that drew off the tempest. And Wiley gets kind of interesting when he says this. Thus did God, Christ, cover his little flock with the shield of the Muslim. Kind of a neat way of saying it, isn't it? He covered his little flock with the shield of the Muslim. You know, so many times we look at the events that are surrounding us 
from our limited perspective. Our lives, our trials, our soils, uh, sorrows, even our joys. And this is what takes up our lives. I'm like that. Oftentimes, the picture that I see is limited to me and those immediately in my context. That's what I see. However, we miss out when we do that on the bigger picture of a God who's keeping watch over his own, no matter where they're at. It's so easy to be stuck in the minutia here, and all I see is this. Have you ever seen a person who focuses on one thing and they become a, uh, I think the phrase is monomaniac? Isn't I think they used that in the 1800s. You just focus on this, and this is the only thing that I can see, and I forget everything else. This accomplishes all my vision. But we need to back up and see that God is seeing so much more, and God's hand is watching over his people. He did it clearly. Who would have thought that the Islamic Ottoman Turks would be the, the, the issue of salvation for the Protestant Reformation. You wouldn't have chosen that. I wouldn't have chosen that. God did. Because God sees things and uses things in ways that we do not understand. You know, there's another point I'd like to bring out. The prayers that move the hand of omnipotence, those prayers are still needing to be prayed. Prayers that aren't heard are prayers that are not prayed. If you're not praying, it's a good chance your prayer won't be heard. We need to be praying now more than anything. And we need to change our prayers from always being about ourselves, quite frankly, to being about others. I was uh, moved this week in my study uh, by a section from the book, God Cares, by Mervyn Maxwell. He quotes James Dobson in it, in his book, Straight Talk to Men and Their Wives. And here's what he says. This is speaking about prayer. Um, if prayer is so powerful that God moves in history because his people pray, should we not be praying today for our people? If God's people's prayers ascend up before his throne and he acts and blows trumpets as a result of it, should we not be praying today? The greatest delusion is to suppose that our children will be devout Christians simply because their parents have been devout Christians. Of course, James Dobson you know, speaks on family all the time. And he's saying, if we think that our children become Christians because we're Christians, we're under a great delusion. And a few pages later, he says, here's what he prays for his family. He said, while their children were young, they would fast and pray for them once a week. And the prayer went something like this. O Lord, keep the circle of our little family unbroken when we stand before you on the day of judgment. Compensate for our mistakes and failures as parents and counteract the influences of an evil world that would undermine the faith of our children. And especially, Lord, we ask for your involvement when our son and daughter stand at the crossroads, deciding whether or not to walk the Christian path. They will be beyond our care at that moment, and we humbly ask you to be there. Send a significant friend or leader to help them choose the right direction. 
They were yours before they were born, and now we give them back to you in faith, knowing that you love them even more than we do. Toward that end, we dedicate this day of fasting and prayer. I haven't prayed like that. Oh, don't get me wrong. I pray for my children. But that kind of deep prayer that God, I recognize that they're loaned to me. I'm going to do the best I possibly can, but there's something I can't do. I'm asking you to move in the lives of my children. We need to pray and ask God to move in the lives of our family. Pray for your children. Pray for your parents. Pray for your friends. Ask God to move in their lives. Because quite frankly, there's so much that you and I can't do, but God is beyond us. God sees what we can't see. We're stuck in the little minutia of today, and God sees the big picture of tomorrow. Are you praying for your loved ones? Are you praying for others in your church family? Let's take note of what we see here in the seven trumpets. God's given us time. Time for repentance. Mercy is given so that lives can be fully lived in Jesus Christ. I want to pray like this. Would you? Is that your desire? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I've been moved by the prayer of Dr. James Dobson. Moved because it lets me know once again that you're calling me to pray for my children, for my family, for my church family. And Father, you're asking not just me, but for each one of us to do that. You moved because of the prayers of your people in the Middle Ages, and you will move today because of our prayers. I know that because you promised you would. We claim that promise, Father, this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Our closing hymn today will be number 528, A Shelter in the Time of Storm. And before we sing, I'd like to uplift a prayer request to you, if that's okay. Um, We have uh, one of our church family, uh, many who are struggling right now, but I want to lift up specifically uh, Mr. Terry Duenas. Uh He is in the hospital right now, and uh, he is just having a difficult time with his health, very difficult. I'm going to ask that you would remember him in your personal prayers, um, and maybe we could pray for him before we sing one more time. The song we're singing is a shelter in the time of storm, and uh, yes, it's raining right now, um, but there's a bigger storm that we face. And that's the, uh, we need him to be the shelter in that time. Could you just uh, bow your heads with me again? Father in heaven, we want to uplift Terry Duenas. We want to uplift Susan, their whole family. I'm asking, Father, that you would shelter him in the time of storm that they face. May you move in their family's life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.